Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Fridays at this time with the weekly update here at JM in the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. It's good to be with you again. Appreciate that. Who's responsible for the uh, for the killing of the Al Jazeera journalist? Well, I guess with something that will be determined, it, uh, the, the speculation varies, it goes back and forth, and there's so many people who would love to pin it on Israel. And, uh, you know, it's a war zone at the time, a conflict zone. Uh, it's not unusual. There have been many Al Jazeera reporters killed in such situations, and yet you don't see the kind of hyper-focus on it. This is somebody, I mean, it's it's obviously um, not something anybody rejoices in or, or wants to see happen, uh, but there were, the Palestinians were firing, firing just at random, and the possibility that it could have been a, a soldier uh, who was responding to, to the fire, or it could have been, and more likely, according to the Prime Minister still, that a Palestinian bullet uh, killed her. And you saw that they were yelling, we, we shot a soldier because she was wearing a flak jacket and a helmet. So we'll have to wait till the investigation uh, finishes. But the harsh reaction and the immediate condemnations that came really just point up again the the double standard uh some of the damage and i don't mean i mean it's terrible that somebody was killed but in addition to that the damage that's being done to israel is already done meaning that if this episode is going to be used or if they want to use it as incitement against israel incitement against jews and increase in terror attacks i mean it's out there already you know the, the public perception it seems you know before any investigation uh, um results are released has already been determined the the incitement has uh, was launched immediately the fact that the palestinian authority refuses to cooperate in the investigation that uh, they couldn't draw a conclusion i believe if they could have they certainly would have they drew conclusions and made statements in other ways to indicate that they think that israel did it or israelis responsible for it but uh, the fact that they won't cooperate should raise questions with people uh, and I think um, uh, underscores the fact that they're not really anxious to get to the truth. And if in fact it's true that Israeli intelligence has already determined or investigative um, personnel has already determined that that the type of bullet or the type of, um, uh, of um, a weapon that killed her you know, could not have come from an IDF member, why are they not out there in a much stronger fashion um, a state because both sides use the same kind of bullets, and they have not been able to determine yet the origin uh, of the fire uh, shooting, and that the bullets itself does not uh, is not determined as you see sometimes in the whodunits where you know they know they can trace the bullet and the markings and stuff. So far, and it, I always think that there's a um, that there's a desire. Um, let me know if I'm right. The desire among the Israeli administration to the truth, and I say it that way because one that that they're looking to to publicize the truth, and if an apology is necessary, they'll make sure to go ahead and do that. Is there any reason to think otherwise in this case? No, I think that Israel's facing it honestly as they do all such situations to their credibility and their. And, and also that they now take the blame for something they're not responsible for, although 
as you know, it doesn't matter. The world condemned them. The world, even administration statements were very harsh. They didn't specifically blame Israel, but called Israel for investigations and stuff, and the immediate reaction. Uh, she was an American citizen also, so I guess that, uh, and and people seem to know her, so all of those factors contributed to it. But it's, it's Israel's um, self-examination and history of doing so in worse situations, conflict situations where other countries would never think of doing it, uh, and uh, is is stands in for public scrutiny all the time. Yeah, and frankly, the Israeli media is always on top of that. Like it, it seems in case well, the first to criticize Israel, right? Usually, most of the Israeli media is, is the worst critics. Which, which sometimes I think that they're you know they're afraid to, uh, to you know to release too many statements or to. Um, uh, you know, speak too much about the episode because their own media uh, may take it and, and spin it a certain way. But the truth is that, again, uh, I, I, I mean, I, no reason to doubt what you're saying in terms of sincerity of the Israelis to get to the truth and release the, uh, the, the truth. And if an apology is necessary, it's necessary. But I think the Israeli media, on top of that, just sits on top of Israeli officials until they get an answer. Not necessarily the answer they want or they like, but until an answer is determined. And I think that that sometimes makes officials very, very nervous. Um, I that's true. Yeah. Um, so this is now part of a, a an entire uh, wave of terror that's going on. We spoke about this last week, of course. Uh, we know what happened in Al Ad. We discussed it last Friday. One of the things that that I noticed this week um, that I don't think is is that common, or maybe it's just not reported uh, as often as it was this week, is the number of people who are corroborators and cooperators with terrorists that are also arrested. There was a pretty significant number of people who were accused of um, uh, uh, cooperating with the Elad terrorists. Uh, you know. Who've been uh, who've been taken in? Who've been arrested? Accused and 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 arrested for cooperating with terrorists? Were they part of a cell? Uh, I don't think most are lone operatives, even if they don't belong to a particular organization. But when you find a pattern and, and something that and an incident that is uh, not random, but about something long planned and had to be coordinated and different people involved, and they're able to trace it, then yes. And often you don't see it because it takes place afterwards. It can take place a week, a month yeah. after the incident where they're able to uh, find people that were involved often it's family members because they knew the attack was going to take place there are uh, you know during the recent wave there were Arab parents who called the police to alert them to to their kids intention uh, because they wanted they wanted to prevent the death of the kid in, the, in an incident um, and I think that the the um, the police in each case tried to look if in and it's true here too whereas too often people say it's a lone wolf operation. Well, in fact, there's an incitement. There's, it could be an, an imam, it can be uh, social media, it can be in a school, it could be friends. There's so many sources of where the incitement can come from. And on the other hand, it can come from an individual who decides at some point to answer the call and to carry out this kind of vicious attack. Is it um, uh, the, 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 the Israeli army... Uh, and intelligence officials make an extra effort here because of the wave of terror, meaning that they they know they they know this has got to be uh, affecting the collective Israeli psyche um, as all this is going 
yeah, I can only imagine, um, especially because now they're coming into areas where you never quote unquote expect them. Um, is this now, you know, one of the ways that Israeli officials are trying to calm people down by showing just how many are being arrested and that they're going into, you know, into the circles that are, you know, that, that are affected by the ripple effect of the terror attack in order to find people who might be inciting? I think it shows that the, the commitment to the government and the police to try to apprehend all those involved, there is uh, as you said rightly, um, an impact, a ripple impact in the society as a whole where people are more concerned about leaving, going out at night, other things um, till, till this thing is, is stopped. Uh, it's very hard to do that. You know how integrated the, the Arab-Israeli population is, let alone also the people who cross over from East Jerusalem and, and um, many other places. But, you know, there's no way to hermetically seal it. They're closing some of the gaps in the border where people crossed and have come through illegally to work in Israel. And like the people in Elad, they work there. There were people there. They used to come to work. And they knew the people. They knew the layout of the land. And that was true in many of the other incidents, too, that it was territory they were familiar with. Uh, so the closing of the of the gaps in the border, which which the government was well aware of and people knew, but sometimes uh, they closed an, an eye because they needed the labor and people said we, they knew these people. Uh, so that it's it's uh, very difficult, and it, it underscores the need for human intelligence. That with all the other surveillance and things that we have, human intelligence is still critical, and why a physical presence on the ground is so critical. Uh, when people just blithely talk about, you know, withdrawing police or withdrawing forces from uh, areas, then you lose that capacity. I hear that. but the, the And also, everybody's fair game now. I know it's always been the case that the enemy, uh, you know, couldn't care less who they're attacking. But the way they're, they're going after the army, the way they're going after police officials, first responders, etc. I mean, it's just, it's just a, it, 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 it's like... Um, you know, it's a, it's an effort to. Uh, it's complete chaos. <laughs> you never know. You never know how they're going to act or how they're going to react or what type of crowd they're going to attract that'll join in in the attack. It's it's just a. It, it just seems to be much more out of hand than usual. Well, because you've had a, a sharp increase in the number of cases of late, and there's been there was a long period of quiet. People get accustomed to it, and you know this disrupts, even though it affects such a small percentage that you, and most people don't even know these attacks, you know, they take place in an isolated place, an incident. Uh, it's not the whole country, you know, gets is under attack, but today it can happen anywhere in the country. And that is even more disconcerting to people. And, you know, they're looking for a solution and not seeing is there, is there something that can be done short of trying to seal the country more or, or you know, losing the labor or doing whatever else. Uh, others being necessary. You know, last week I asked you about the um, uh, the Arab parties that are still part of the government, and um, uh, you know they do it with the same reason that they claim they did it when they f- originally joined in with the government was that it's better for the uh, for the Arabs if they're you know represented in government, etc. Uh, but now I wonder a week later, and we, and we discussed last week, you know, whether it, this ties the hands of the prime minister because as part of his coalition is an Arab an Arab party and a pretty outspoken Arab leader. Uh, but I wonder now if, you know, after this announcement by Rahm this week that they're staying in the government, now that they've solidified their position, you know, a week later, I, I wonder if, if, if there's some thought 
uh, going on in the back of their minds that as long as we stay part of this coalition, it allows uh, it allows the the people who would like to participate in terror attacks. You know, it gives them more leeway. They're more able to do so because again, the prime minister's hands are somewhat tied politically. Do you think there's anything to that? I don't think that that's the motivation behind Rome. I think the financial incentives are very great, and the fact that nobody wants to go to an election because they want to be as strong in another election as they are today, by the way, it applies not just to the Arab parties, to the Jewish parties as well. Um, I, I think that uh, you know there always can be considerations, such as you suggest, but I think the motivation for, for them is purely internal politics and financial. It's very interesting. Uh, if there was, a, and, and someone, I don't know if it's an unfair question or what, but do you get the impression that there was a different prime minister or one uh, with, with other tact? I'm not calling for BB to come back. I'm, not, I'm just saying that, you know, I'm trying to determine to what degree the prime minister can be blamed for all of this. Do you think if there was different leadership, it might be different? Look, I think Bennett has has tried to assert this issue and taken a clear stand and waffle on it. Uh, but um, you know, the overall style of leadership and and the confidence people have is always affected by what's at the top and the stability of the governments that um, that are are in power. Uh, but but the truth is that you had terrorism under Netanyahu. You had terrorism under every prime minister. Um, it spends a lot on the chief of police, the chief of the armies, the others, and, and the aggressiveness with which they pursue it. Gantz seems to have given the order that and sustained the effort that they pursue everybody responsible for these kind of attacks. So I'm not sure that, um, you, you know, the overall tone can be set or the stability of the government may impact it because people feel that they can think, but the terrorist doesn't make a political analysis. He, he yeah. follows... Uh, other other incentives to to engage in this yeah i hear that um what do you think of the of the unexpectedly understated victory day of vladimir putin this week i think it was uh, he had no choice uh he put on display the army and some missiles and things but uh i don't think that the country would have uh, reacted positively to it he had to communicate the tone of seriousness as people begin to realize that their kids aren't coming back or they haven't heard from them for a long time and that the numbers, and I, I met this week with people, uh, let's say for leaders of other countries who are well-informed and uh, the numbers they give of the what they, what they assess the casualties to be for, for the Russian army are astounding. And the, you know, that the Russians have very low tolerance for body bags that we saw it in Syria. We've seen it elsewhere. That's why they incinerate bodies or you've seen now how they uncovered bodies buried by the roadside in, in Ukraine of Russian soldiers uh, because they don't want them to come back and have to confront the families. And each funeral becomes a rallying point against the government, against the, the war, uh, that the, the, the numbers in the tens of thousands, they say, of, of people captured, killed, uh, kidnapped, um, wounded. And these, these, this toll will actually, at some point, uh, maybe not in its totality, but will become clear as families are informed or if they see that 
the, the family, the loved ones aren't coming back. So I think he, he was reflecting that and that it would not have been well received to have done too high a profile and too celebratory an event. And what about on the battlefield? Many thought that he would be making uh, many much stronger moves around May the 9th on the battlefield itself than he actually did in the Ukraine. Well, I think that the um, that it's not so much his direct actions, but that of the people he appointed. And I think they're looking at the fact that their equipment failed. I mean, who would buy Russian tanks today when they say they don't work and they're, they're so inferior? Uh, I mean, all the equipment that uh, that they had. So he is looking at the commanders in the field. The, the feeling is that, you know, there's such widespread corruption that things that he thought were being spent on tanks and high-quality equipment, uh, in fact, were a sham. I think a lot of people will, will pay the price. Many generals have been killed already. Some have been sacked by him, and killed in the war, but sacked in, in the political uh, arena. Uh, so I think there's uh, there's a lot of thinking and rethinking going on, a lot of accountability that will will have to be um, uh, measured, and the uh, and and the responses could be very serious for a lot of people in the higher ranks of the military. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored digital radio around the world, the web, NachumSiegel.com, on the NachumSiegel network, and of course on the beloved. NSN app uh, on the Seraph Shabbos Parshas MR. Yes, we are one Parsha off from our brothers and sisters in Israel, that we know. Uh, and in terms of the um, uh, back to the Ukraine situation for a moment, what about Finland's move to join NATO at this point? What do you think? Well, they're taking advantage of, uh, of the situation. The, there's a lot of speculation about what Russia's response will be. I doubt that it will be military confrontation. Uh, they warned them in the past not to do it, but they know this is directly on Russia's border. Uh, I think Sweden will also make, take advantage of the moment to, to move, and NATO clearly moving quickly to, to approve their applications uh, as a response also to the situation. Um, but um, it's, it's not a major military shift in the balance. It is a strategic shift, having um, Finland Sweden and, and, a, and a reassertion of the significance of NATO, as we have seen through through this conflict. NATO, which was dormant virtually, and people there were those who wanted to write it off. There were those who thought the United States shouldn't be investing in it. I think today it, it is um, it is seen as a much more viable vehicle. Uh, were you surprised that the United States made the commitment financially they did this week to Ukraine? I'm more than surprised, not by by the fact that they did it, but I, I have no idea how they're going to expend it. You know, they allocate a billion and a half dollars on Monday, and then Thursday all of a sudden come up with a proposal for $33 billion, which is a huge amount. And the question is, where, where is it going? How how will it, it be allocated equitably, I mean, and, and be checked that it's actually going to the sources and places uh, where it's supposed to is it for military equipment? We'll we'll have to see the breakdown of the of the allocation um, for helping uh, people in Ukraine. But this this I I just don't see it. I don't see. I, I've tried to ask. I was in Washington yesterday to to get a better picture uh, of the breakdown. And many people seem to be asking the same question, including legislators. Yeah, I can imagine. And uh, of course, there are many needs in this country, and people wonder about sending that kind of amount. That kind of money to you know somewhere else for uh, at this time. Uh, not that financial aid for foreign countries has ever been you know 
um, uh, it's always been something that's that's part of the United States and part of its uh, uh, you know international activities. I get it, uh, but boy, with it, it's just a bad visual with all the different uh, uh, pe- with all the people here in this country who are now suffering from what looks like is going to be a recession and the you know the high inflation, etc. And we and we've diminished and withdrew aid from others. Foreign aid usually makes up about a point one percent or a little bit over one percent of our of our budget. People focus on it because they keep saying we shouldn't spend money abroad, including you know attacking aid to Israel or others, right. uh, where it's an investment in American security. And we see that more and more in the Gulf. How important it is that when we withdrew our aircraft carriers, the, the impact it had on so many of our allies and the lack of confidence and the lack of clarity and where America obviously can't be everywhere all the time, but, but there are ways of conveying the message. I think the regional alliances that are emerging uh, are going to be of greater and greater significance. The one in the Mediterranean, as you know, we were just in Greece, Cyprus, Israel for um, visiting and strengthening the initiative we started 12 years ago to bring the three countries that now are forming the hub for what would be a much broader uh, connection and alliance of countries uh, on the Mediterranean and into to the Gulf, linking to the Gulf and to many other countries in what I hope will be the next phase of, of the Abraham Accords in, in various forms. Um, but a lot of it is a response to the fact that they perceive an absence of America or a lack of consistency when we withdrew support for the for the East Med uh, pipeline. You know, it's one thing to say it's not financially viable, which may be true, but it's something you discuss with your allies when they were all caught off guard by the announcement. And now people are looking at it again because of the increase in price in, in, of fuel that it could become economically viable. But it's, it's the way we exercise uh, the policy and and um, create the presence and, and assure people, I think the visits uh, of the president to the region are going to be important to Israel, Saudi Arabia, maybe others. Um, again, all of this is not finalized, but this is, I think, it's very important to show the flag to, to, to remind them of the commitment that we have. But they are looking more internally at each other and at Israel. And you see the joint maneuvers. I saw it when I was in Greece. I, I, I saw the first inscriptions and the um, excitement of the military there and in Cyprus of their association with Israel. But France is also present. Egypt wants to be part of it. Others are part of it. And the uh, exercises drew eight, nine, ten countries, which is almost unheard of. You know, you just mentioned some countries that would probably be able to have some influence on the PA and others who might be responsible for terror attacks in Israel. Uh, you know, if, if they would decide to crack down, if they would decide to uh, assert their power, uh, it would probably help the situation somewhat. Unless you're telling me that Iran and others are backing these terrorists and there's no hope in terms of, uh, you know, someone actually controlling them. Iran and others are backing these terrorists. There is hope, but it's it's up to Israel to take the lead. The fact is that other countries, including Egypt, has helped in Gaza a great deal. Have Saudi uh, and then Jordan helped at all? Yes, they, they withdrew. Well, Saudi Arabia withdrew their funding uh, from the PA, and, and, um, and many of them have communicated messages. It, it is, Jordan is a separate case. You know, the King of Jordan is in Washington today. Um, it's the second visit. I think it's the only one who's been invited two times. But they've been playing a very duplicitous role. And this has been true over the years, but specifically and very visibly now at the Temple Mount incidents where they condemned uh, Israel right away. But more than that, 
the foreign minister or the prime minister gave a speech this week where he said it's, the Temple Mount is occupied territory, accusing Israel of usurping it and of, of declaring when it was Israel after 1967 that invited the Waqf in, which was created by Jordan. It is the trust that's supposed to be in charge. They don't do much to exercise restraint on, on parties. Um, and now the, and, and, and Jordan was looking to add 500 more security people to it and made a big brouhaha that Israel didn't seem to didn't want it. Of course, they don't want it. The um, uh, so Jordan has played uh, a duplicitous role over the years, but now very blatantly uh, condemning Israel on the violence, not, not ascribing responsibility when they know themselves that they're the victims of this kind of incitement. But two thirds of the population of Jordan are Palestinians. They play to their domestic constituency. I'm sure that he, they will come. The king will come here with complaints uh, about Israel, but he knows that Israel is what's propping them up. That Israel saved his kingdom so many times and has been so supportive. And they each time close the eye, their eyes to some of these excessive reactions on the part of Jordan, because they they uh, you know they know that he he's the he's the best hope right now. That if he falls, it could be civil war. It could be a bad, uh, you know, much worse parties coming to power. Remember, Israel supplies a lot of water to, to Jordan as well, and, and as a result of previous agreements. Very complicated, to say the least. Wow. Um, um, why do you think that the, that the prime minister took on <laughs> religious leaders of the past who may not have appreciated the importance of of Israel, or what eventually would become Israel, being the future of the the being being the place of the future of the Jewish people. I honestly don't know. I mean, he didn't check with me about his his speech. It was somewhat uh, bizarre. Just to, I mean, I I get it. that at the yes coming you know in the week of the Independence Day, et cetera. Right. It, but there might have been something that prompted it, a statement, some something, but I don't know. And um, by the way, I just want to point out one thing that when on all the news last night was the embassy had its the Yom Hatzmut celebration in Washington, in a magnificent event, and there you saw Arab ambassadors, ambassador UAE, ambassador of uh, of um, uh, Turkey, ambassador uh, uh, of a number of Arab ambassadors were there, and a number of uh, I think I think the Omani told me that, not the Omani, the Bahraini told me he was coming. Uh, there were several more at an Israel Independence Day celebration, but that will never, of course, make the news. Well, not only that, but in the context of history, it's just amazing if you pause for a moment and think about it. Uh, and I'm telling you, Nahum, when, when you travel in the region, as I have in the last few weeks again, and see how how intense the relationships are, how they're growing, how more and more countries want in in some way or see it as... as um, the essential road of the future, and it it, it goes to energy, it goes to security. It, it has so many manifestations, as you know. The um, uh, the president, the king of uh, of UAE, died this morning, right. so we're due for a change there. Although till now, in fact, MBZ has uh, Mohammed bin Zayed has been running the country uh, de facto. Is uh, Turkey responding to the rocket attacks from Syria? They actually, re- the rocket attacks from Syria or the rioting, they, they react, the response to the rioting was actually much more muted. And as you know, he is on a charm offensive in various countries, visiting uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, visiting other countries, Qatar, 
Um, it's because of his internal situation. The economic situation in Turkey is terrible. His political situation is not good. The the um, you know the rivals have not been doing great. But the the fact is that he he and if the elections were held today, he would lose. Uh, right now, it's him against him. There's not that somebody else running against him. And the so his personal, political, and economic situations are terrible, and he's looking out. And one, of course, has been to improve his relationship with Israel. And so, his criticism of the of the violence was more muted than many of the other countries that, like the Abraham Accord countries, um, as a response to it. Um, and in terms of uh, of Syria, you have to see now there's a rivalry going on, which of course hardly gets mentioned between Iran. And, and Turkey over who fills the void from um, uh, Russians with uh, retraction. They, they you know taken out tens of thousands of their soldiers from different positions and sent them to the Ukraine. And those voids are generally being filled by the militias of Iran, We're bringing in more manpower, etc. And Assad, as you saw, visited in the UAE and. Uh, and we'll, we'll do other things, but uh, but I visited in um, Iran, and he's and it was very uh, celebrated visit. And he expressed his gratitude and his uh, appreciation for. It. He did visit UAE before that, and the the uh, there's a shift taking place because Russia, we don't know what its future role will be there, but they they were balanced against both Turkey and Iran's presence. All three of them, while they belong to the Astana Accord. You know, to cooperate, it's only against the United States. But when they're left alone, at least two of the three always join against the third. So Iran, like Russia and, and Iran, will try to delimit Turkey and northern Syria, or Russia and, and Turkey will move against Iran's presence. And the so the situation there is, is continues to be unstable, even as, as Assad uh, extends his his influence. But his praise of the Iranians, it's the cooperation with the Iranians that were he demonstrated this week. Uh, went really to the limit. Huh, interesting. And uh, with all of this and everything that we've discussed, and a week later, and I, know, I do bring this up almost every week, uh, Iran is nowhere in the headlines. If you even look at Jewish news sites and Israeli news sites, you won't find Iran anywhere when, of course, they, they are getting closer and closer uh, to being an even more dangerous enemy. And I, and I keep reading about or, or, or seeing headlines about uh, certain insistence by President Biden and his administration regarding the deal with Iran. What issue is that? What is it that they continue to insist upon? Well, let me. You're right that Iran doesn't get a lot of attention since the Ukrainian uh, war, um, because it's obviously more immediate. And uh, Iran is um, has blocked the negotiations because they're insisting on the IRGC, the Iran Revolutionary Guard, being removed from the foreign terrorist organization. Meaning, the, meaning the U.S. is insisting on that. No, that. Iran. Oh, that they are. They're, they're, they're that they're also terrorists. Right. from the terrorism list. Right. And President Biden said that he wouldn't do it. Other Blinken said he wouldn't do it. Right. We weren't so sure, but it looks like that they are holding. There were our proposals, even now, being put forward by the Europeans. Borrell uh, has put forward some. He is the negotiator for the EU, uh, and he has. Uh, and Moro is in in Iran right now. Uh, in what they call a last-ditch effort. One of the signs is that in Vienna they had set up this tent for a big announcement, which they thought would be of the resumption of the talks and the thing, and they dismantled it. 
which means that they they're not looking to any immediate uh, announcements. So Iran, on the one hand, is, is flirting with Russia. Russia plays a very significant role in Iran's decision-making on this issue internally, uh, as they did in Vienna. And the, they, they benefit from both ways, that if the sanctions continue, the oil prices stay high. If they don't, if Iran gets out of it, then they, they will ship their oil through Iran and use it as an export. Iran, on its part, you know, has increased its oil exports a great deal. Uh, they're up to a, a 1.2 million barrels a day, plus 300,000 that they sell through third parties to China. Uh, and at the price of oil today, it's it's a huge windfall for them. They um, they, they face internal divisions and dissension from any kind of a concession on this, and the pressure from the RGC leadership is great for them to get off of the sanctions list. And uh, so... Iran's absence from the headlines does not mean anything. Right now, they announced this week, rather, that they built a, a nuclear reactor all from homegrown parts, all from internal. Is it completely true or not? We don't know. But they, but the fact that they announced and they said they're using it for medical isotopes, yes, that's I'm sure 100 percent the intent <laughs> of building a reactor is for medical uh, uh, treatments of uh, of people. So they are continuing to move ahead, as you said. They're, they are continuing their incitement in the region. Uh, thank God they didn't get the billions of dollars that would have come with a deal, which they would have spent, as they are spending now, against the government of Bahrain, against the governments in the, in the Gulf, and in their um, uh, aggressiveness, seeking to undermine, even in the last weeks, countries in the region and in Africa, we see their fingerprint, their footprint everywhere, and as I keep saying, and, and I'm waiting for people in the government to, to for this to resonate. And I, I've done it for a long time here. We're losing the whole continent of South America, which will pose huge security problems. We see election after election bringing to power extreme leftist people who are anti-American, certainly and even anti-Israel, and the the growing influence there uh, and presence Russia, Turkey, uh, Iran. Uh, the the um, Iranians are, are not sitting on their hands waiting for things to happen. They're neglecting their population. I think the internal situation is worse than ever. There's shortages of food. There's shortages of water. The um, economic conditions and, and the currency is worthless. So they, you know, they they are taking advantage of what they think is this hiatus and the focus on Ukraine to to harden their positions. But in the long run, I, I don't know that they can sustain it. Well, as long as everyone else allows this hiatus to continue, uh, you know, just they, they, it's, it's it, not just sustained, but they're going to continue to make progress while the entire world is asleep at the wheel. Yeah, but it's progress on the on the nuclear front, right? And it means their breakout time has been reduced greatly. I, I don't even know if it makes sense to talk about you know long term distances when everybody said that in two three months they can have a nuclear weapon and that they have stockpiled so much enriched uranium, et cetera, et cetera. And we know that we're cheating all the time on during the JCPOA. So when people said, "Well, if we, it was because we pulled out," no, they were doing it while we were in the agreement, and we should have come back with a really tough agreement that would have restricted them and not given them all the benefits until they really produce. Because this way, they got the money, they got everything, and then they didn't have to really. They weren't really held to account. As we see, the facilities that they claimed they dismantled are back online and bigger and better, and and underground inside mountains that um, uh, that that the IEA even this week again said they have no access to it 
Wow, unbelievable. Uh, well, I thank you, Mr. Holmwine. Uh, have a wonderful Shabbos, and we'll speak again next week. Have a great Shabbos, and be optimistic. We have great things also happening. Seriously, when I saw and had meetings this week in Washington with a lot of foreign ambassadors and things, it's this great potential for the future. Well, I appreciate that. A lot of people on both sides of the world are very pessimistic these days. It's good to hear that there's reason to be optimistic. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with us Fridays, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time with the weekly update here at JM in the AM.